Well, to introduce us, uh, my name's Christina, this is Fred, and this is Rodney. We've uh, taught together for many, many years, the three of us, so it is always a pleasure for me and a joy for me to be with them both. Yesterday, we celebrated the 30th anniversary of IMS. I'm sure some of you were here for that. It was a most most, um, tremendously joyful and touching and happy day of celebration and perhaps disproved the idea that Buddhists never have fun. (laughs) Occasionally, we know how to party. One of the <clears throat> really touching moments in the day, amongst many touching moments, was the moment when two young um, Cambodian and American uh, Cambodian American women came up to me. Uh, women that I'd first met when they were about four and five years old, when they used to come to the family course and sit on my knee, and. This family, this Cambodian family, had been uh, sponsored to come to America and supported in America by the Buddhist Peace Fellowship uh, during the, or in the aftermath of the Vietnam War when their family was endangered. And they took root here, and now they're very independent but it struck me when I met them how they, that family and that whole story was in some very moving way an embodiment of the Buddhist teaching. The understanding that for us to change our heart allows us a possibility in a very real way to contribute to changing our world. I thought their the, the story was a tribute in some way to the power of love and the power of compassion and the power of generosity and the way that it, those qualities can transform our hearts and lives and to touch the lives of others and to help in that transformation. At the center of this path, at the center of this teaching, there is always a very powerful offering of a sense of aspiration, of possibility. The genuine possibility of ending suffering. The genuine possibility of being a a very conscious participant in our lives and our world. And this, in essence is really what the path is about. When I began my own practice as a teenager, my practice was really inspired by seeing this sense of possibility embodied in a community of Tibetan refugees who had not been long in India. And many of these Tibetan refugees had really been through almost unimaginable hardship and adversity and suffering. 
Many of them had lost their families. They'd certainly lost their homes. Many of them had been exposed to quite a lot of violence, imprisonment, torture. And what really struck me at the first instance or at the first glance was really how it was so hard to find traces of bitterness or anger or hatred. Instead, what was really lived and what I really met in that community was a very, first of all, a very deep sense of happiness, of, of joy, um, but also this tremendous integrity, this tremendous integrity and, and these intact, hearts. And when I encountered that and when I saw that, it struck me so powerfully that I just didn't know how this was possible. That there was something going on here that I actually really didn't understand, that didn't fit into my frame of reference or experience. And that was really what I was so curious about. How could this be? How could this be? And when I began to practice and to study, really what I heard from my first teacher is that this is actually not a mystery. That compassion is not an accident. That wisdom is not just some random encounter reserved for the lucky few. And that happiness is something that is really born in our own hearts, our own minds. The Buddha, Siddhartha, came in that time in India. The very much cultural and religious belief system of that time, which Siddhartha had very much internalized, was the belief that liberation, that freedom really depended upon transcendence. The transcending of one's body, the transcending of one's mind, the transcending of one's life. So when Siddhartha began his journey, he began it by seeking this kind of transcendence. He left his family for years. He starved and abused his body as a way of kind of disconnecting from this physical form. He spent years trying to subdue his mind. Why? Because in that belief system of that time, all of this, the body, the mind, life, was really regarded as a kind of problem to overcome, an obstacle to get over. And that if one was successful in overcoming or getting over these obstacles, then in theory one would be enlightened or liberated. And one of the major turning points, one of the major insights in the journey of Siddhartha was to understand that everything that he had previously seen as a problem, an obstacle, that they were actually the classroom of his awakening. That they were the classroom and the ground of his freedom. 
I think this belief system about meeting so much in our lives and so much in ourselves as problems, as obstacles, it's really, really probably not so unfamiliar to many of us. You know, often on a daily basis, we can think, well, if I just had a better body, you know, I'd surely get enlightened, you know, or if I just had a different kind of mind or this issue wasn't happening in my life or if my relationship was different or, you know, if I had more money or, you know, if my life was easier, then surely I would get enlightened. And people actually enact this belief system so many times in a retreat. It's a belief system that gives rise to resistance, to pushing away, to aversion, to avoidance, not wanting to be where we are, not wanting to be with what is. So we are asked, really, to start a retreat and to continue in our practice really with the same insight that was so much a turning point for Siddhartha. That all that we have brought here, all who we are in this moment, everything that is happening, that is occurring in our life, in our body, in our mind, in our heart, this is the classroom of our awakening. This is the classroom of our compassion. It's a classroom of understanding. It is a classroom of peace. To find this turning point and to realize the only way to really practice the practice of freedom, the practice of liberation, is to root it, to ground it within our own willingness to welcome our life. To welcome our life. To learn how to befriend ourselves. Now, I understand that many of you are quite new to IMS, and some of you are probably new to this practice. And I do know that when you are new to IMS or new to this practice, it's quite understandable that you might come into the retreat with some worries, some apprehension, some anxiety about how it may be. And it can all look a little odd, can't it? And believe me, it will look odder as the days go on. (laughs) It can all look a little strange, like some different landscape, some different world, you know. All these folks on cushions, you know, and these Buddha statues, and we're going to talk about the silence, and we're going to talk about slowing down. I would really encourage you to feel welcomed and to relax. Please don't get into performance anxiety. You know, you're not competing with the person beside you on the next cushion. You're not needing to perform for us, you know, to report wonderful meditations and, you know, fantastic experiences. You're not needed to perform in some perfect way in your yogi job. Start this retreat with not forcing, not striving, not comparing, but to really relax into being here, to befriend yourself and to befriend this moment. Over the days of this retreat, 
There's probably a lot you will learn about the practice of meditation, the nuts and bolts, the practicalities of meditation. But for us, this is less important than the understanding you may come to, than the insights that may begin to emerge from within you. This, the practice is simply a vehicle for those insights and for that deepening of understanding. So I warmly, warmly welcome you here, and I hope that your time here on retreat is one that is rich, that is opening, that is deepening. And remember to smile. So I'd like to offer my welcome to you all as well. It's a delight. It's a delight to meet some of you anew and some of you uh, as former uh, acquaintances uh, and to deepen our relationship regardless of where we have started. One of the uh, comments that was made yesterday at the 30-year anniversary was that someone actually figured out that there have been approximately 6 million meditative hours in this room over the 30 years. So that is the lineage. That is our heritage as we move in here. And my own feeling is that the walls, the floor, everything holds that resonance. And it's a deep sense of safety and relaxation that it provides. Not of anxiety, not of arousal, but a settled energy. And if we can just tap into what's already here, we will be well on our way into the retreat. I know that as you, each of us approach a beginning or opening night, there can be a kind of an excitement about the meditation, what it means to meditate, how we will meditate, perhaps some thoughts about what meditation will be for us. And... Very soon, uh, that excitement, probably by tomorrow morning, (laughs) will slip away into the realities of what it means to be with oneself. And there'll be um, a confrontation with the ordinary, with the usual, with who we are when we aren't propped up with entertainment, when we aren't full of our distractions when we aren't dependent upon intensity or stimulation. Now, that's kind of a hot to cold water plunge. And it's, it can be rather unsettling. Just remember those six million hours. Just remember that. That's our heritage here. And for six million hours, people have been able and willing to make that cold water or hot water plunge into that deep sense of inward relaxation to find a home within ourselves, to find a resting place, a place in which we are settled, not unsettled, a place of abiding, a sense of belonging to ourselves. If you look at a deep yearning, especially in this culture, there is this 
inherent, almost cultural lack of belonging. Some of us feel like we're a mistake to ourselves, and we shouldn't be here, or that something's wrong wherever we show up. And what this meditation does is turn us around so that we're at home wherever we are, so that we can be settled no matter what the circumstances, so that we can find a center that holds those six million hours within ourselves. To do that, we ask stillness and quiet. Because how are we going to see the distractibility if we continue to distract ourselves through our inward conversation or external conversation to allow that changeover from not belonging to belonging? It requires us to hold a quietness, to instill a settledness, to be willing not to speak. And there will be much language verbally that goes on regardless of whether you speak internally. And so we have to come to a new relation with that as well. But remember the heart of the practice. And the teacher of the practice is appointing to that ever deepening stillness and silence within. And the more we allow ourselves to move there through relaxation, not through ambition, the more we will find our home within our mind and body, the more we will find the art of being settled and coming to peace. And so I look forward to entering that journey with all of us this week. Thank you very much. I also would like to welcome you all. Very glad and very pleased to be here with all of you. I would like to talk about a very vital aspect of this retreat. <clears throat> it's to do with our conduct and our way of being here together. The way of being that is conducive to the cultivation of meditation, calm, insight, conducive to awakening and to inquiry into our bodies, our hearts, and minds. For this purpose, we all need to agree to live by certain guidelines of conduct. We need to agree on what is called the five ethical training guidelines, or precepts, if you wish. And the first one of these is not to intentionally kill or harm any living being, be it big or small or even tiny, be it pleasant or unpleasant for us. It's a way of expressing and living our care and our respect for all of life. Just as we don't like to suffer and to die, so do other beings not want to suffer or die. The second guideline is not to take what is not ours or what isn't given to us. 
it our roommates belonging or neighbors or the centers or whatever, we decide to simply not take or use anything that doesn't belong to us. Again, it's a way of being caring, respectful, respectful towards others' property. And it's a way of making ourselves trustworthy. And it's also a way of creating trust among the whole group. The third guideline is not to engage in any sexual activity whatsoever during these days and nights. It's important to take away our attention from objects of sense desire and it's important to collect our energy and use it as undistractedly as possible for our practice. It's also a way of staying alone, staying by ourselves, yet still being supported by a group. It also means that we don't have to constantly pay attention so much to how we look, what our appearance might be, whether we look attractive or not, how it might affect others. We're actually relieved from all that. Don't have to bother with any of this if you don't want to. The fourth guideline is to abstain from taking alcohol or intoxicants of any kind. To keep our mind clear and fit for meditation seems pretty obvious. Of course, if you have to take medication, please do so. The fifth and last of the guidelines is to be honest and not to speak lies, not to lie to ourselves, not to fool ourselves, not to lie to others. I would say that it's a way of respecting reality, respecting things as they are, and not to distort the truth. If we want to explore and discover reality and truth, we need to respect it deeply. And a very essential aspect of this is the silence. In having come here and in being here, you all agree to keeping silent. During these retreats, silence is one of the most helpful and most central ingredients for deepening your practice. And silence means silence in the public areas, really also complete silence in your rooms, as much as outdoors or anywhere else. Of course, you can talk to us in the hall for questions or during interviews, groups, interview groups, and if you need to talk to a staff person. But that's about all. If you have come here with a friend or a partner, it's especially important to understand how essential and vital it is to keep the silence. Not just for yourself, not just to protect your friends or partners, but for the whole group, really essential. 
In this, we also discourage reading, writing, making phone calls. We've read so many books, and here we'll read from our direct experience. Also not to write notes or journals. It's really a time too precious for being busy with all that. Also, if you bought your cell phone, please, please turn it off till next Sunday noon. Also, no text messages. We recently heard that uh, one can do text messages under the bed covers, depending on what kind of cell phone you have. Please don't. The silence is a wonderful thing, as many of you know. It allows the heart and mind to get more and more still and peaceful within. We could call it sweet silence or perhaps compassionate silence. The space that allows us to see the movements of the mind more clearly. Space that enables us to understand ourselves more deeply. And it's really a gift we offer to ourselves and to others. And once we have understood and worked with silence, we discover how incredibly rich and precious a space it is. Lao Tzu tells us, take time to listen to what is said without words, to obey the law too subtle to be written, to worship the unnameable and to embrace the unformed. It's really all about simplifying life here, about protecting our own and others' practice space. We have a wonderful opportunity here to come to our senses and to discover inner beauty and inner freedom. We'll now do some meditation together, but if you'd like to, just for a moment, stand or stretch. (coughs) Okay, I can turn. Please sit in a way that's upright and relaxed. 
We'll say a lot more about posture tomorrow. For now, just bring your attention within the body, quietly, attentively, sensing and feeling what's here right now. Being aware of touch, where your body touches the ground or the pillow or the chair, where the hands touch the body. Areas in your body that are cool, others that are warm or hot. So just feel that, be with it, notice. And then being present in this way. See if you can feel the movement of the breath within your body. Just see whether you can notice sensations that arise from the movement of the in-breath, the out-breath. And settle into this experience of the sensations that come and go with the breathing. Leave the breath as it is, shallow or deep or long or short or tight or loose. It's all fine. Simply to feel, to sense what is. Present with the in-breath, present with the out-breath. Should you find that your, your mind has wandered away, your attention has wandered away, lost in thoughts of any kind, the moment you notice, let the thoughts go and come back to the body again, to the breathing. Very simple, just being present, coming back into the present.
mindful of the in-breath, mindful of the out-breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.